bit of a confusion last week, but now his video up on YouTube and all the links to Taeyong's work and going forward will all be just down below. So go and check that out. Go and check YouTube if you want to watch the conversation. See you soon. Thank you. I, I want to start with KBS uh, Taeyong because I know that when I first arrived in Korea, things like KBS, SBS, NBC, I didn't really understand the difference between them. They all kind of merged into one. And so I was lacking that understanding that a lot of Korean people will have. Now, you work for KBS and from speaking to you before, I know that you're very happy with your position. You believe it's a good job to have. It's the national broadcaster. But for those not so aware, can you give us your view on what KBS is, what role KBS plays in Korean society, and perhaps how is how it is different from something like NBC or JTBC. What year was it when you arrived? Two thousand and five. Two thousand and five, mm. and um, I think you're exactly uh, made a correct observation that you that you can't tell much difference from uh, mm. the big three. Um, terrestrial broadcasters. And I think that's because KBS originally started off uh, as a uh, more like a government broadcaster, mm -hmm. uh, which means we only have all the only the boring stuff, <laughs> you know, national ceremonies and stuff. Mm. And but when John Duan came to power, he um, there were uh, there were many uh, private broadcasters back then uh, and he got rid of a lot of them mm -hmm. a few a few of them and gave all those resources to kps to um, make it into make make it which made uh which eventually made it more interesting uh, so only mbc and kbs survived back then was yes. that for political control or economic reasons or political control mm -hmm. obviously and that is the reason um, KBS has become more like other broadcasters, mm. I think. Uh, so that, at, until recently, I also wondered what 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 is KBS for? What what's the difference? We we get license fees, but you know mm. it looks pretty much the same. Um, I was skeptical too, but recently I. Um, in Pyeongchang Olympics, mm -hmm. in the opening ceremonies, uh, I noticed a lot of people were starting to watch KBS. I, I am on Twitter. I don't know if you are on Twitter, but what is fun about Twitter is that it's almost like a live chatting, uh, mm. watching the events together. And um, I was watching the opening ceremonies and I was on Twitter and everybody was uh, chatting about it. And that's when I felt that uh yeah maybe um kbs uh has a role to play in this uh society uh, creating a shared um experience for the people who live here in korea right now so i think that that might be a uh, sports or news or when you have a big shared event it, i think it can work as a platform that we can share uh, but you could also ask, you know, there, couldn't NBC or SBS do it? But that's a whole different story, but a whole new story. But um, 
Yeah, I'll end it at that right now. <laughs> it's a really interesting point because I know that sometimes during regular days that there might not be that much difference between whether you're watching BBC One, this is from a British perspective, or ITV3. But if there's a World Cup, if there's an Olympics, if there's a big event, a lot of people naturally gravitate towards the national that's broadcast. Yeah. yeah, and so that's fascinating that people would do that um, with KBS in South Korea. You mentioned a little bit there about the license fees. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been here a long time and I didn't realize how I was paying my license fees and, and, and how it was being done. I, I just asked my wife before I started and she said, yeah, we paid two, $2,501. And she's a little bit behind the times, I guess, not checking the bills. But this is, uh, it's 3801 a month. And it goes through uh, Kepco, it goes through the electricity bill. Yes, yes. What amazed me about KBS's license fees in South Korea is it was the same for 41 years. Mm -hmm. Now, like 2,500 won is a really small amount. You can't even really buy gimbap with that these days. Um, can you just tell us a little bit sort of why did license fees remain so low for so long? Is there any kind of current conversation or public mood? Because I know a lot of people sometimes complain about license fees in other countries. And have has the increase last year from 2.5 to 3.8, has that helped in any way? Um, it's been staying so low because nobody's will be happy if it goes up, except KBS. Right. Uh, and politicians also, uh, you know, even if they feel the need to raise it, uh, to to make it more um, come to the more modern standard, mm. you know, they they probably wouldn't be able to voice it because it's so unpopular. Mm -hmm. And um, with all the political climate, which is more uh, bipolar right now, uh, it's it makes it more harder to uh, raise the license fees. So. Um, you know, frankly, if I did not work for KBS, I would be really against raising the license fee fees either because I am not all exactly always happy with KBS. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't have been also. So um, yeah, it's a I I don't see it uh, being come to the uh, the needed amount anytime sooner because it's going to be hard and you know people demand you make more uh, objective pro programs more objective or uh, make your programs better then we'll make uh, we'll let you raise the license fees but from kbs point of view we need the money to make our programs better so it's like which is for stag or the chicken so yeah i don't see it happening anytime soon <laughs> And that's sad. It just fascinated me to see how long it had remained so low because Korea is a country that changes so quickly and everything oh. is always going. And to keep it that low for so long, um, just in terms then, I guess, of reputation of KBS. And, and you already mentioned that society has become a little bit sort of polarized and everybody has different opinions. And absolutely. Um, I know when we spoke before, you mentioned that KBS's reputation was perhaps at its peak during the Kim Dae-jung government, but then more recently it's been criticized for being a mouthpiece of the government, that it's sort of changed. So I'd like to ask you, 
How has the reputation of KBS changed over the years? Is it still seen as objective? And then perhaps, if not, why is it? Why is it perhaps? Why is its reputation decreasing? How do people, in your mind, Taeyong, view KBS in terms of its objectivity, in terms of its reputation? I don't think the uh, reputation is really decreasing. It's always pretty much the same all the time. Okay. It, um, because KBS tends to uh, always be favorable to who is in government at the time. Um, and that is because of the, I think, the system that the government indirectly uh, gets to choose who runs who runs KBS. So that is the uh, inborn like limit uh, of of this organization. Um, but you know, back in Kim Dae-jung's time, or or even up to Nomuyan, I I first started working for KBS in in Nomuyan's time, uh -huh. and um, it was like this, you know, the person from the government calls that about some issues that they have with programs. They don't like they they don't like what they hear from that program, uh -huh. and oh my, uh, my friend who is also a producer about having. Uh, the president himself speak about it on television, but my friend was able to say, "No, you can't do that. That that would not be objective." He, he was able to refuse. Uh, wow. Uh, it, it practically was a president's offer, mm -hmm. uh, but um, things started to change uh, when uh, Im Young Bak became president. Uh, it, it became. It started growing a little bit more authoritarian, uh, like the old ways. Mm. Um, and personally, I feel feel it got worse in Pakistan's time. And it's so it stays that way. It, no matter how who who gets to be the president, even mm. if, even in Moon Jae-in's time, only the people change. So, I think that kind of a culture, kind of uh, the inside culture of the organization, you know, once it starts to deteriorate, I, it's hard to get it back to the old days. But um, yeah, I don't, it doesn't matter who uh, is it right, right on the power or left on the power. It's uh, I think the uh, problem is, you know, how do you keep the inside cultural standards uh, up uh, uh, against the political influences um, that, but that has not been very hopeful so far. <laughs> I was gobsmacked when I first read about that and then hearing it from you that the president in South Korea will either in the past directly or now you say maybe more indirectly appoint the head of KBS. So when a new president comes, there's a new head of the national television. Uh, broadcasting corporation and then the content will be reflected in that do you think there's possibility that it will go back I mean, I mean you spoke during let's say Nomu Hyun's time when your friend was able to reject claims from the Chongwa Day and sort of say you know we, well, we need this we respect your opinion but this is what we do and 
Will it go back that way? You sort of fear that it's become entrenched, that system, regardless whether it's the ruling or the opposition party in. Is there a hope that it can go back? Um, you know, I'll have to see next, uh, next March because um, if uh, the head of KBS has changed recently, about uh, two or three months ago, mm -hmm. uh, um, he is uh more pro i guess <laughs> mm -hmm. um i i might have uh, might be in trouble for saying that but uh everybody knows but we just don't say um but if yun song yeo becomes a president uh, you know i don't know how the kbs will go um, mm -hmm. because he is more lean leaning to ijemyeong so mm -hmm. I think if Yoon Sung Yeol becomes the president, it will be a, a real test if uh, this organization can stand. Because um, when when uh, Yoon Bak became president, uh, the head of KBS had to be changed back then mm -hmm. because Yoon Bak didn't like him. He, so he had a lawsuit and and just drove away the uh, president back the president of KBS back then, CEO of KBS and had a new person come in. Uh, but I, I'm really curious to see what will happen. Uh, but I don't know, I'm, I'm hopeful about that because times have changed, even if Yoon Sung Yeol becomes president, I, I hope he won't be that um, cr uh, crude in his approaches. <laughs> Yeah, me too. It's fascinating. I didn't mean to go down this kind of rabbit hole, but it's fascinating to see how political sometimes all these things are and that perhaps gets a little bit lost when people are just looking at Korea from the outside that all of these conversations going in. I'd like to see KBS get back to that. Um, if we talk about content, so looking at some of KBS's content, from recently it's perhaps been Ibangwon, and then maybe people might know Descendants of the Sun or Il Bagi Il, One Night, Two Days. Um, in previous interviews, um, you've sort of mentioned that maybe uh, everyone has a feeling we're lagging behind the times and concerned about the rise of Netflix. Now, Netflix is Squid Game, Itaewon Class, Silent Sea. How can we understand the challenge of Netflix to KBS? And is it possible that international success which is real and there is it possible that that international success of korean programs and dramas might undermine the domestic quality of the television if there's more focus being placed there how does kbs address the challenge of netflix and other streaming platforms like disney and amazon um i think in in terms of a drama or a, or a variety programs you know the the Netflix or other OTTs have much better programs already. And mm. they, I heard that um, for the famous actors or actresses, when they choose their, which, which drama to appear, you know, KBS or NBC is like way down the list. Uh, Netflix or uh, like, or TVN mm. is like uh, number one or two or three. And they, KBS is already way, way down the list. So um, in terms of, uh, I guess, I'll have to say entertainment, 
the power has already shifted. Um, mm. So I think KBS, what what KBS needs to do is focus on what it can do uh, better. Um, for example, maybe we have a longer history, which means uh, longer materials from archives or um, the news network or um, uh, organizing big sports events and broadcasting, like th those, those kinds of stuff. I think mm -hmm. in the long run, um, maybe uh, sports and news and, and maybe documentary will should should be the uh, focal point for KBS, I think. Mm. I wonder if it's going to be able to do that because I want to get on to documentaries and sports, which is, you know, your bread and butter. That's what you do, Taeyang. Um, speaking to another uh, producer, they sort of said that they felt public broadcasting had lost the challenge and that it was focusing too much on entertainment programs, celebrities, you know, mm -hmm people eating lamian, let's watch that, and let's watch women play baseball. Not that there's anything wrong with lamian or baseball, but that those were perhaps easier. They were less divisive. They were less political, and they, they would generate more money. Do you think that, you know, in this capitalist structure where profits do become so important, we, we spoke about the license fees, is it possible to focus on documentaries and sports and, and survive? Uh, that's really a good point because uh, sports broadcasting rights is already really expensive mm -hmm. and um, KBS on, is only contracted up to, uh, up to uh, this year, this year's World Cup and um, maybe next Olympics mm -hmm. and after that uh, so, somebody else already bought their rights but um, so that really is a big problem for uh, sports and everything, which makes uh, the license fees more important. Mm. And having the price license fees uh, go up more important, but that really is a problem. But I think, you know, when there'll come a point when the, uh, maybe people like government think, you know, what, what are we gonna do with KBS, you know, they. They can't survive like this. Are we going to let them just die? Don't we need them at all? And mm -hmm. you know, I think there'll come a point when they decide that, um, yeah, but maybe uh, news and you know, sports and some stuff, they, they still have some function to do in KBS. They're, they're, we'll somehow find a way. I'm, mm. No. <laughs> yeah, if you think about what a, a government should provide its citizens, you think of sort of healthcare and education, and, and that can come through television, you know, it can come through giving them, you know, good quality documentaries and, and programs and the sports. It feels kind of weird that we might be getting into a situation where you have to pay to watch your team in a World Cup or an Olympics or things like that. I hope we don't get there, but slowly it feels that that's the way it's going and, you know, with these fees for that it's really expensive i hope we don't get there i hope we, because you said earlier that the sports um, become this unifying thing when you watch it on twitter you know everyone comes together so if we're worried about that polarization that that would only increase without things like kbs 
I guess moving on to your documentaries, Taeyong, um, which is one of the reasons I'm happy to talk to you because I've been watching them again. You started making documentaries 2010 when you found all this archival footage, as you said, sleeping in the vaults of KBS. Um, now, your documentaries have gone on to be incredibly successful, but first, can you tell us about the KBS vaults where you found all of this amazing footage of career in the past? Is it a secret underground bunker? Is it actual film, tape? Are they computers? And then also take us a little bit through that realization that there was all of this amazing footage there that you were going to do something with, please. Yes, back in 2010 when I started, it was most of it was on tape. Mm -hmm. on a, uh, we have a library uh, and uh, like it's everywhere because tape, physical tape is almost as big as a, uh, a book. So it takes up so much space. Mm -hmm. and right now, all the tapes went to the uh, National Library or, or uh, we have a storage in Suwon mm -hmm. because it has been, most of it has been digitized right now. So it is in file, file format, which mm -hmm. makes uh, for people like me much easier to uh, make documentaries based on uh, archives. But back then I had to uh, uh, rent out a whole lot of boxes of tapes and you know go through all the tapes to see what's in there and to choose what I'm going, going to use. Mm. And I think that is why um, even though we have a rich amount of archives, uh, the producers or filmmakers were not using the archives because it was too much work. No, I had to um, I had to make uh, about a ten minute segment about every week back then before mm -hmm. I made you know, a long long term feature documentaries, and I was going through archives for that. But uh, you know, for for the about seven days of working, I had to go to the library for about three days to find it. So that is um, a long time for. Uh, a little bit less than half of your time. So mm. people were not using much archives back then, but right now it's all digitized. Many people are turning to archives. Um, what drew you to it? If it was so me? sort of not efficient, if it wasn't that efficient in terms of time, is it just your personality to do? What was it about it that made you different to go to those oh, archives? Yeah, I, 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 came to find out that I am very tenacious person. Mm -hmm. um, I had, if I set my eyes on finding something, you know, I, I get to find something and I enjoy the process. So um, I was back then when I was making short uh, features, mm -hmm. you know, that it first started off as in, in my assignment, assignment that uh, I do short features for, uh, the um, the good games or good uh, matches from the past. You know, looking uh, looking back, uh, that, so I didn't voluntarily start uh, looking at the archives. But you know, when I, once I started looking at the archives, I I found that that I liked uh, searching the archives and uh, seeing what's on there. Hmm. So that 
that's when I started thinking of making a longer one, longer documentaries out of it. Did it take a lot of courage to do that? Because as society develops, there's all this focus on high quality HD. I'll get all the terms wrong, but you know, good looking footage, great cinematography. And, you know, even looking at you there, I can tell you're a producer and you've said everything out nicely. But um, when you look at this footage, it's kind of grainy. It looks old. It might not be lit in the best ways. So that must have taken a lot of courage, I think, to make that the basis of your work, considering that there might have been limitations or what was actually that the advantage of it that it was different oh yeah um i think that depends on how much percentage the old footage uh, takes in your documentaries because if if it's only a little percentage of uh what's on the screen what on your film is mm. based on archives you know it's really no problem everybody can take that but the challenge was uh, in 2018 when I was when I was making a documentary almost fully out of an uh, archival footage. That was the challenge. Um, but I work for the sports department, and um, in sports departments, what's most important is uh, broadcasting. Uh, Sometimes we have to make documentaries, but it's like a side job. Mm -hmm. So nobody really cares about it and nobody really wants to do it. So I always got to do it because I liked doing it. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So, mm -hmm. and they said, yeah, sure. And, and they're thankful for me for that. <laughs> so um, nobody really cared about it until it went on air. They didn't know what's going on there. Only, only me and... Uh, uh, my direct supervisor knew. Mm -hmm. uh, so that helped. If I was uh, working for documentary department, you know, it might not have been able to go on air in just exactly that format. Um, and also, I, I, I mentioned uh, last time, I got really encouraged by uh, finding out about BBC's Adam Curtis, who makes documentaries almost solely out of our archival footage. Mm. And, you know, watching that, I, you know, it's, to I, I, I got to find out that it's totally possible. And it's not only totally possible, it's, it's really good and interesting. So yeah. Well, yeah, why not? I can do that too. So that, that encouraged me a lot too. It's great that that freedom, nobody was really paying attention to you. So you could explore and you could do these things. And yeah, I noticed this similarities, but I'm a big fan of Adam Curtis. And then when I watch your work as well, I, I, I feel those. It's a very divisive thing. So I've given some of my students previously, like um, in when we study modernity at university, I've given them things like hypernormalization from Adam Curtis. I've given them in Korean studies classes, you're 88, 18. And that kind of footage can be quite divisive, actually. Some people yeah. love it and they rave about it and they want more and it's like this epiphany to them. And other students look at me like going, David, what is this? I don't, where's the story? What's happening? Yeah. Have you found that? Do you, do you get the same? Do you think it's divisive? Like not divisive is the wrong word, but do you think it, people react differently to that particular style? Oh yes, but um, in um, 
the style itself is, I think it could be uh, a little bit demanding because you it constantly changes and yeah. uh, you have to pay attention. Um, so, you know, people who, who are really tired or really don't have, don't want to pay attention to what they uh, saw on the say, see on the screen, you know, it, I don't think they will like it too much, but mm. um, I think once you get started or get interested in certain um, certain things that you see on screen, hey, what what is this? You know, I I try to uh, work like some uh, fishermen, like hey hey, you're hooked now, mm. so you're gonna have to keep watching it. That that's what I try to focus on and. Yeah, it works on some people, but but mostly I got favor favorable reviews because mm. it was something new back uh, back in uh, two thousand eighteen. Uh, so people, I think a lot of people appreciated that something new came out. Yeah. Is there an intellectual aspect to it, Taeyong? Is it hard work? Like you make the viewer put in the work to understand it you're not sort of spoon feeding them everything are you i don't know what's your opinion on it do you think there's a some intellectual aspect to it or would you describe it differently um i wouldn't work, use the word intellectual but uh i'm more like uh you know if you know you know if you don't know mm. you don't know because um you i in Korean television, there is a saying that you have to set your standard on middle school students to make, don't make it too hard, don't make it too easy. Mm. Just a little bit, make it a little bit easy for, for middle school students. But um, I always really had a hard time with that. Um, <laughs> I really didn't want to spoon feed. Like when you're listening to music, uh, yeah. you don't really get it always. and. You don't really get it the first time, but you you don't the, when you, people who make music don't uh, go. Oh, people won't probably get this, so I'm gonna make it easier or more um, standard. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to take that approach, and also, like I said, uh, not many people caring about what goes um, in KBS not many superiors carrying you know if there's no trouble then they're like okay just don't cause any trouble so mm. i took the freedom to um not explaining everything uh, if you see something on the screen and you say hey that that's somebody if you know it's great you know it, it adds a extra layer to, to the program mm. but if you don't know it's still okay you can still understand um so that was the approach uh, of my program and it still is my approach mm. lots of little easter eggs and references and, uh, and guess, layers yeah, guess that, you could say eggs. yeah that way of describing it and i guess it's pretty it's probably cool working for kbs in that regard in that it sounds like you haven't been micromanaged there's not this huge levels of bureaucracy or committee meetings judging everything that you do that you're left to create and that's such a, a great thing to have isn't it you know just to it, be left like that yes. Let, let's talk about some of your documentaries Taeyong, and um 
underneath this, just for anybody listening or watching, I'm going to put some links. Because am I allowed to put links? They're all on YouTube. Is that oh, okay? Sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. Great. Um, your first one, Chona Jangse Man Manse. This deals with serum. This kind of mm -hmm. Korean wrestling. Yeah. Um, really fitting thing to make a documentary about because it's a sport that seems so much a part of pre-modern Korea or Korea of the past. It's almost non-existent today. And there's probably some serum people out there that will hate me for saying that, but I don't see or hear much about it. Um, for those, you know, people getting interested in Korea might not have any idea about it. They might recognize Kang Odong from An and Hyung Nim. And watching this, this he was like sort of 19, this kind of baby-faced, very diligent, tenacious, national superstar at the time this was your first documentary so well one of the major ones that you made was there a reason for choosing that sport and what can you tell us about your sort of um first exploration into feature-length documentary making with this yeah um, at the time i was uh watching a lot of espn sports documentaries the mm -hmm. espn 34 30 series mm -hmm. i was really into that um, and yeah, I, I want to make something like that. That's how I've been thinking always. And the director of the sports departments one day comes in and says, hey, somebody needs to make a documentary about serum because I've got just funding funded from the Serum Association. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah, so, so I didn't choose the subject, it's just uh, the fund came in, so hey, who wants to make it? But nobody really wants to make it because, like I said, the sports departments producers think back then, mm. uh, well, hey, hey, we are here for broadcasting. You know, nobody wants to make a documentary because they're both dealing with sports, but they are, those two are totally different programs uh, mm. on on how you make it, and so. I, I raised my hand, hey, I want to try. So so the director said, okay, you try. So that's how it started. And serum. Um, that was not the subject that I chose, but it was a good subject because uh, back in the 80s when professional serum was really popular, the KBS was the uh, biggest sport, the, the only broadcaster for it. So we had a lot of footage of old serum. So yeah, it was a perfect subject mm. to uh, uh, utilize what KBS has, has, has in storage. So that's how it started. And uh, yeah, it, it was fun making it. And I was trying to make it in the style of uh, ESPN 3430 uh, documentaries. Mm -hmm. What kind of style would that be like this? 30 for 30 when when you say that was the style that you were trying to do what what is that style Taeyang? oh yeah what i liked about uh, those documentaries was it was talking about sports uh, the the main theme is sports but watching it i get i got to learn about uh you know, american society or mm. if what i like one of the documentaries that i liked most was about um uh the Serbian basketball players uh, in the 90s, but, mm. but they had a war back then. So I could learn a lot about uh, that war and Serbia. 
and uh, Croatia, and like those kind of stuff. It's it's all uh, on the surface. It's about sports, but mm -hmm. watching it, you get to learn much much more about um, the society and people. So oh, that's what I loved about the sports documentaries of Thirty Four Thirty, and that's what I wanted to do with a serum documentary too, but uh, looking back, it was, I, I didn't have the uh, ability to go deeper, but I, I tried to give, uh, uh, I, should I say sniff here and there a little mm. bit, yes. No, definitely the sniff, and it's interesting to hear that's why you like those documentaries, because it's one of the reasons why I like your documentaries. I wouldn't perhaps sit down and choose to watch a documentary about serum wrestling like yeah. as, as good as it might be but watching your work on it you get to see the telephones that people used and and, and the clothes that they wore and, and and that's the fascination for me and just how people dressed and spoke you can see everything going on behind the sport and and that's really eye-opening i think that's a great thing and then of course you have these huge figures these men with their top off and Know, running into each other it, how big was that in the 1980s because watching your documentary you know there's sort of packed stadiums and there's tv cameras was it on par with i've no idea with baseball with football was it bigger bigger yes mm. like annual you have those sports stars income list mm. uh, number one it was always serum in wow. the early early 80s uh, so people like Kang Odong or before him you know Iman Gi that's he, right he's on TV too yeah Iman Gi really was a first superstar because uh, he was he was handsome I was gonna say that yeah he's yeah, a handsome, he handsome and he comes from a not the heaviest weight class a little bit lighter but mm. he beats all the heavier uh, weight class and becomes the champion so that he was extremely popular and um, interviewing all those ex serum players, you know, what one of the, one of the most interesting things that I heard from them that was serum was this sport for the television age, the color tele, color television age, because mm. color te television started about the same time as serum. Um, you know, people were watching uh, close-ups of uh men with uh, great bodies mm. and you know they uh, like when you have baseball or soccer it's more like uh taken from a far away mm -hmm. so you have group of people but in serum it's always two people or one one person so one of the uh players told me that it was just the right sport at the right time because mm. you had color television and Serum one-on-one -on -one was made for color television because you could all feel all the personalities of the players, you know, all, a variety of personalities. So yeah, that that was the, I think the, the single most interesting interview mm. I had making that documentary. And, and yeah, and it also had the personalities, I guess, you know, you, yeah. you could have this great sport and technology, but if there's no one to drive it and you really captured that, I, I think. Also, I want to mention, Taeyong, 
just going back to even that first sort of documentary, the way you put the music together with the images is fantastic. And, you know, even at the start of that first one on Serum, I'm not sure if this is appropriate, but I get kind of Tarantino vibes for it from it. Maybe that's because it's the combination. Maybe it's because everything looks retro. Maybe it's this kind of choice of music. But can you give us any insight in, into how you choose the music? Is it is it done for you? Are you a big fan of certain genres or sounds? And what role does DJ Soulscape play in any of this? Oh, yes. Um, uh, DJ Soulscape worked on most of my documentaries. And that, that was the first documentary that I started working with him because um, it deals with the 80s and DJ Soulscape is almost like a scholar for old Korean music, old Korean Kayo. Uh, so I thought he was the perfect person for that documentary because of for dealing with the 80s. Uh -huh. So I started working with him then and uh, it's mostly, it, mostly all the decisions are all this, uh, it, it's, it's like he makes suggestions to use certain kind of music uh -huh. at a certain point. And we sit together and we go through, you know, hey, I like that. And can we have something different for that? And uh, so that's how we uh, choose music and um, is it all authentic uh, music of the time rather than being sort of retro tracks that are made today? Is it all? Mostly. It was all authentic used in that serum documentary. It was all from that time. Mm -hmm. But recently I wanted him to make something uh, more. Uh, I wanted him to compose recently. So mm -hmm. recent documentaries are mostly composed. But back then it was all uh selection like a like a as a dj does so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i want to tell you about how i work because uh, i get a whole bunch of music from dj soulscape first uh, in a, on a file mm. so it's like a reference tracks so I, I music is very important when i edit my documentary because i i think um i focus really on the rhythm of the program, rhythm of the, um, of what you see, mm -hmm. uh, because not only like certain exciting uh, segments, but the whole program, on the whole program, I think rhythm is really important to make uh, people keep watching. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You have to go fast sometimes, you know, and when you go fast for about uh, like, five six minutes then you have you save that energy for the next about 15 minutes mm -hmm. and 15 minutes go we have to go fast again because people will be will be bored so that i think the rhythm is really important and um when you talk about tarantino i that might be i think that might be why because i focus much more on rhythm I'm a bit worried now about watching your documentaries going forward because now I'm going to know Ah, uh, Tang's doing a fast bit now. It's been, it must have been about <laughs> I, now I know the secrets. I hope it doesn't affect it. But yeah, the, 
the music is great. Music is really important part of my life. I'm always listening to music, whatever I'm doing and working. And so, yeah, the music, I think, adds so much to your documentaries. Yeah. Can you just very quickly, DJ Soulscape is a person? Is it a collective? It's an individual or? It's an individual. He is a, a pretty famous DJ. Yeah. Okay. He works with his uh, real name, Park Min Jun. I, I put him on credit as DJ Soulscape back then, but he wants to be credited Bang Minjun nowadays. So, but I, I almost like more than ninety percent of my work is done with him. Mm. And that provides the nice continuity. I think that style, everything that runs through, yeah, that's really cool. In the start of that documentary, looking at the early and mid 80s, and you've spent a lot of time on that particular period, I think, with the Olympics, modern Korea, it's yeah. described as an age of tears. And you have all these, these, this kind of footage of people like crying on television and releasing these emotions without reservation, without fear, just this unleashing of these kind of primal feelings sometimes. And it's it's kind of strange tone to see something like that because these days everything is so curated, so scripted. It, it tells you it's emotional, but often it's devoid of actual emotion. You know, the, the signs are there, but the, the content is sometimes missing. So what did you make of this idea of that time being a an age of tears? Does it make for better television or are you looking for those things sometimes i was searching through the uh, uh footage of that time and then i was surprised too because it has so strong emotions for like when they're crying they're really crying mm. uh, hard uh, so it's hard to see nowadays that, that kind of cry that was a uh a little bit shocking for me I remember, and um, my theory is that a lot of uh, areas in back then was in the society was uh, restricted, and uh, it was a military dictatorship. Uh, there weren't many uh, ways to vent your feelings uh, outside. So when you have a uh, anti-communist rally you know they really go hard they mm -hmm. they burn down everything they just um just beat the puppet Kim Il-sung puppets like all all to the floor and they're really they're really at it I mean they're really mad mm -hmm. so uh, I think uh when they have a chance to express themselves like in when something really sad happens you know when people thought, people felt that they have a chance to really release themselves. They really released themselves back mm. then. I think that was interesting. And I thought it might have to do with having not many chances to release themselves uh, of, of the stress and that. And also there were, uh, yeah, because it was a, a military dictatorship society. Mm -hmm. So that was my theory back then, yes. I think it makes a lot of sense that if people are sort of repressed in terms of political speech or what they're allowed to say or express, that it would probably come out in other ways, you know. But 
and it also made me think if somebody does documentary footage of our generation they're not going to have similar footage of people releasing like this on television yeah. you know they, right. that that will be missing and it was really eye-opening to see that because I'd, I'd never seen korean people just go at it and whether they were shouting cheering like you say beating puppets it was all there um, you're becoming more like japan <laughs> i guess you mean sort of more polite civilized what, what is it yeah yeah more civilized more uh, more restrained uh, as i age i and I'm I'm at I am forty forty six right now, and I I think my age is the like had experience of both sides mm -hmm. because when we were young when I was younger, which is the early eighties, you know, people were really uh, fighting in the streets a lot. You know, my mom fought with the taxi drivers pretty often and all that stuff, but that never really happens now. So um, I I really feel. That's, mm. that has changed and I think that re that is reflected on that documentary do you have to have been born in the 80s to do what you do because I, I I'm jumping ahead now but you just sort of mentioned you but I, I don't mean to get into some psychotherapy here but is it like also a personal discovery going back and looking at this is there an element of personal nostalgia and do you have to have have an understanding of that time and the reason I ask is and I'm jumping ahead your latest one is dealing with 67 or, or going mm. back even further when you weren't. So how does that personal connection to the time period play a role too? Yeah, I'm, I think about that a lot, but uh, I haven't reached the conclusion, but uh, mm. the early and uh, like mid and late eighties is always the most interesting to me because mm -hmm. um, I was about uh, 12 years old in 12 years old in 1987, uh, which is a time I think uh, is a transformative time for, for age for a person to go through. And um, also this uh, Korean society was changing a lot and uh, very fast back then. So I really don't have the answer, but I am always interested in that period. And, uh, one thing is that, uh, like about two years ago, I was working with a younger producer. Uh, she was born in um, 1990, early 90s. And we were talking about what subject we could make on um, this modern Korea documentary. Mm. And she suggested 2002 World Cup, but I was surprised because 2002 is like, feels like contemporary time for me yeah, yeah. but thinking about it it's 20 years ago already so it's when she was 12. yes so oh that's when i realized that everybody has different um time frames coming uh, on which uh of what age they are um so that at that time i said no that's too recent but you know and a little bit later, I think about it. Oh, 20 years. Yeah, that, that's a pretty long time. So I also get scared when I see memes like that on on the oh, internet, right. you know, how long ago yeah. Pearl Jam or Soundgarden was and things, you know, 
you just mentioned the 2002 World Cup and you seem to be really big into football from having spoken to you before. I don't know many people that might play football manager or championship manager. <laughs> um, football's really big in Korea at the moment, you know, with Son Heung-min and Hwang Yi-tan and Turkey, Kim Min-jae, I think. Um, you made a documentary, The Birth of the Teguk Warriors, the national team's preparation uh, for the for the Olympics, wasn't it? Yeah. For the World Cup, 1986 World Cup. The 1986 World Cup, that's right. Um, but then you also went on to spend time with uh, Gi Song Yong and Hong Yong Bo, spent half mm. a year. What was it like being, you know, being so close to those huge football icons in South Korea and making a documentary about them bringing them to, to life? Um, I spent the most time with, uh, I think, Hong Myung-bo because um, I, I uh, followed him around for about half an year, half year for yeah. the uh, qualification on the road to uh, the London Olympics. Um, so that was the first time I had uh, firsthand experience uh, being a part of the sports team because uh, I really had to be a part of the team. I, I wore the same clothes with them. Wow. Um, I carried all the balls and the cones to the training ground so I could be a part of the team, which makes me more comfortable for them uh, to shoot. Um, so they, they would be accustomed to my camera. So uh -huh. um, I really felt a part of the team. And, um, you know, when they finally made it to the London Olympics at the moment, I, I, I was genuinely happy with, with them also because I was part of the team. And it was a really valuable experience. But on the other hand, um, in uh, the elite sports organizations or teams or elite sports uh, players in Korea are raised totally differently from normal students. You know, they, they really don't have to go to school. Um, they are, everything is uh, taken care of for them, take care of for them from an early age. You, you only, they only have to um, do football or whatever. Uh, so there were some times that I was really surprised that, um, for instance, they couldn't go to the, to the uh, airport counter and have the check-in because every, somebody else had always wow. been for them. So they were like living in a totally different society. So, um, yeah, that that experience was uh, at the same time wonderful and um, a little bit surprising for them. So they were asking me to talk to the uh, airport counter mm -hmm. to uh, do it for them. So, wow, yeah. <laughs> Any insight tying into Hong Yongbo? Because just watching some footage, again, I think another charismatic, handsome, powerful man. You spent half a year with him. I mean, it would have been a very different documentary if you had, I forget the current coach's name now, the Portuguese guy, Bento, maybe. Um, but any any insights into um, Hong Yongbo and spending that time with him? Yes, he was uh, really popular among the players and the players almost worshipped him and 
I was wondering why, because mm. he seemed like a normal guy, just, just an ordinary, ordinary person. And I really realized the reason for that is because he is an ordinary guy, because all the managers before they have experienced is not an ordinary guy. Mm. He's almost like a dictator. And that is the culture of a sport, elite sports teams, especially in soccer or yeah. football, because the manager is the king. That, that's what I found because, you know, if he doesn't choose you, you don't get go, get to get into games. And mm-hmm. if you don't go to games, you don't go to good universities. You won't have a career at all. So they were brought up that way. Uh, but Hong Myung-bo was acting like a normal person. So I, first I was really uh, puzzled why, why the players like him so much. And year after I made that documentary, I went to another team, which didn't turn out uh, to be a documentary in the end, but I followed that team for, uh, uh, for a few weeks and mm-hmm. he really acted like a king. So, wow. Oh, so that's the difference. Mungo was a uh, might have, must have seemed like an angel or something to mm. those. So I think that says something about uh, elite sports co- culture of Korea. And there was some success. Uh, South Korea beat the British team at the Olympics. Oh yes, they had, they, yeah. they got a bronze medal, which, which was a big success. Yeah. So they, they didn't have to go to the army. That's a huge thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I remember watching that game in South Korea with my mum and my grandmother who was visiting. And she, oh. she, she was a bit confused who to cheer for. She was like, well, I'm here. I should respect <laughs> the hosts. But damn it, we lost. Um, your next work, and, and please, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, Taeyong. Your next work seems to mark something of a change when you look at the 88 Olympics because... Mm-hmm. It's very successful, um, your work, the documentary, but then you start addressing these social and cultural issues, which had been perhaps simmering there, but they they come out more. And from the way I was watching them, you also seem to reduce the amount of interviews and talking heads in your work and start making the footage, the visuals speak them for themselves. First, was there anything that prompted the change in style and approach towards a more narrative, less production? Um, was it just a natural evolution because it was the was the topics were changing, or was there something else? I mean, do you see a, a change there, or is it what more like a continued evolution for you? It was continued, but that it certainly was a little bit of a leap from mm-hmm. uh, what I had used to make. Um, that I, that was because I was doing a research for also uh, and. That documentary also was made because I was funded first. <laughs> you know, you know when when outer organizations have uh, funds mm. for uh, public relations, uh, a lot of them come to KBS because it, it's a safe uh, it's a safe place to put their money in. So, <laughs> so this was funded by the Korean Sports Promotion Foundation, mm-hmm. which was set up from the money left over from the 1988 Olympics. So wow. that foundation wanted to make a documentary about 1988 Olympics um, 
in 2018, which marks the 30th anniversary. Uh, it was a natural choice, I think. So, so that came to KBS and said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I started doing a research on the Olympics. And first I, I was thinking about doing a rivalry of two architects who were involved in um, the Olympics uh, construction. Mm -hmm. I thought that would make an interesting story. So I started doing a lot of research on architecture or urban planning or, or what happened to the Seoul city itself, how, how it was changed. Mm. But, you know, as I did more research, you know, Olympics were not just about architect. It was, it had such a big impact on every aspect of the Korean society. And mm. moreover, KBS had lots and lots of footage about Olympics because everything in the eighties was focused on that 1998 Olympics. Mm. We were always going to that focal point of the whole eighties. So hey, I have a lot of material. You know, I can't, I decided that I just can't talk about talk about a certain small aspect. Mm. Olympics is a much bigger uh, subject than I thought. So uh, I had to take a different approach. Uh, um, I really didn't have time for too many interviews because mm -hmm. <laughs> I had so much, so much material with me. Right. So, yeah, I think that was a, a leap. Yes. It would have been easy hearing that you got um, funding from an organization to make this documentary. It would have been easy to make something that was really like nationalist. Yeah. That yes, would have yes. been perhaps maybe what they were expecting. But what you did was so different because, you know, you are you are dealing with the working class and the slums being removed. You're dealing with sort of the economic inflation, but also with the president. It's everything sometimes, but the sports. Was, was that hard not to make something so nationalistic or so sort of praised? Because that would also be a genuine thing to do. It was a great achievement for South Korea. Um, uh, how was that decision to sort of balance it out with all those different elements? Was it a tough decision to make? Was there any sort of national pride coming in or? No, I, uh, from the start, I knew Gukbong uh, was out of the question. Um, uh, that is something we have been talking about enough in Korean media. Mm. So I wanted to uh, take a different approach. Um, but what I didn't know is that my my sponsors, how my sponsors would react right. uh, taking that approach, but they didn't know what approach I was taking until it came out. Um, they wanted to know, but what's good about KBS is it's, it's a big organization. It, people, um, you know, it's an old, old organization. You know, they, they have a certain amount of trust that it won't do anything too, too different. So I was able to get away with that. Um, mm. They, they were surprised with what they had in the end, uh, but um, 
that documentary get, got a lot of uh, uh, positive reviews and praises from uh, all, all the media. So mm -hmm. you know, in the end, they they decided not to say anything about it. So that's how it worked out. And um, in my mind, I, I I was sure that I was not going there the Gukbong way because I'm not saying that's bad, but that has mm -hmm. been done too much already. Yes. Sure. Yeah, no, there is a time and a place for it. And again, <clears throat> I guess it's that freedom that you have where people leave you alone to, to make your work. That documentary, like it does get the praise and it feels and sounds like the 1980s. And I guess that's also kind of shocking for people. We want something that looks modern. I just want to touch on a couple more elements of this, Taeyong. So um, I read in an interview that you did somewhere where you said, it doesn't matter who's saying something you've got to concentrate on what's being said and <clears throat> looking at that 88 documentary you've got random ajoshis on the street you've got news reporters school kids pop stars im young bak might pop on just for 10 seconds and then he's gone again and then you've got you're addressing leftist issues and the working class and you you show the rulers of the country Chanduan and in a positive light and a negative light it's um it, it's genuinely interesting now was this a conscious decision and why did you approach it from that way so you, why did you get that full spectrum of society and did you work hard to get it and what do you think that adds to the viewer by doing that you know what what benefit does it have by doing that Yes, it was a conscious, conscious decision to have both uh, the light and darkness side of the, the event. Mm. I think I tried really hard to maintain a balance to show both ways. It was not just all glory and gold. And it was not just all um, like having poor people uh, taken off the streets and making them go go or go somewhere else and uh, provide an alibi for the uh, dictatorship. It, you know, it was it was criticized. Sports was criticized a lot for providing an alibi for the dictatorship back in the eighties. Mm. So, as I did my research, I thought that both both of those views had. Uh, there, uh, uh, both of you, those views were valid, uh, and I wanted to reflect what I felt about the '88 Olympics. You know, it had positive sides, a very big positive side, and also negative sides. Both I wanted to show both of them. Um, what I said about uh, people—it uh, doesn't matter who who talks it is what they say it 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 was more like uh i think it was about mr huapyeon mm -hmm. uh, the hardest part uh talking uh with my i was talking with my staff whether to have huapyeon as in a peer because he was uh directly or indirectly responsible for having people killed in guangzhou um, so we were really 
thinking hard, discussing a lot about whether to have him talk at all on on the giving him a platform at all mm. would be a uh, right decision. But I thought that um, he was in a position position to make a lot of decisions back then in the government. And as long as uh, we hear from him, what he experienced in the government back then, his firsthand experiences, you know, I thought it would be okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it would have, have a meaning to him to uh, testify about the decisions he made regarding Olympics back then. Um, so that, that was a tough decision. But like Hoa Pyeong, when you watch uh, that Olympics documentary and the documentaries later on, most of the interviewees are uh, on archive footage and mm -hmm. talking about their firsthand experiences. I try to avoid like professors or like journalists talking about uh, general summarizations. I try to get the interviewees who had firsthand experiences of what I'm trying to talk about. Mm -hmm. So that that's how I choose my interviewees. Mr. Hoa Pyeong also. Talk to people rather than talk about people. I think that's really, right. you know, a, a good thing to have. And yeah, with that, I was kind of surprised to see Hoa Pyeong in there. But I think representation doesn't mean promotion. You know, if you have those right. people, it's not that you're and it's really hard we started off this conversation talking about the the polarization sometimes in society where certain views are not accepted or even heard by various sides but your work genuinely does the opposite of that your work does show both sides and i i think that's something that really should be you know acknowledged and more should be made of it i think Taeyun, because i like looking at it to learn both sides from 88 Olympics, you, your next involvement was the Modern Korea uh, documentary. And it, again, this covers a lot of controversial topics, student protests, leftist groups, Hanil Gwangye, Korea-Japan relations, you know, some things that are very easy to glorify or demonize. Um, how did you approach this one this was a continuation was it of 88 olympics when you're going into this yeah, yeah um it started off uh, from that 88 18 documentary it, because it was uh successful mm. um the people in kbs wanted me to make more of them so um we made it into a series we wanted to make it into a series and which became the modern Korean series. So we made a made a team of producers to make that documentary. That's how it started. And um, everything started from uh, that 88-18 documentary. So mm. it has a very similar approach to 88-18. Mm. Yeah, so you're right. You did... Um... Now, there was, I, I forget how many, you did the episode on, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Korea-Japan relations, is that right? Yes, and student uh, student movements. And the student movements. Was it, 
so it was based on your 88 Olympics. Was it hard to tell the directors, the producers of the other episodes, your kind of style? Or did you have any control over that? If you understand what I'm saying, to try to keep it cohesive, but you right. weren't in control of every episode then. What was that process like? Did they understand what you were doing and how to replicate it? Or did they, you know, go off slightly in their own direction and give a new perspective on that style? Yeah. Um, what uh, I wanted other doc, uh, directors to do was I didn't really uh, touch on them. They, I just just gave them a lot of freedom. Uh, Hong Yong Bo like. Yeah. <laughs> but only that don't do professor interviews, don't do journalist interviews, mm -hmm. just focus on the first-hand experiences. Um, that, that's about it, that, that's about it. Um, and uh, other producers had a, they tell me that they had a lot of hard time because it was, they were not used to working this way because um, other programs had their own formulas of how to make programs you know, they, they have their own grammar, mm -hmm. but this one did not have a set grammar or the ways to make it. You know, you have, the only way it is to just keep, sit down and watching and watching all the footage until you get some idea of how, how you're going to connect those footage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you need uh, support from the interviewees, you know, choose the interviewees then. They, they were having a hard time adjusting to this way, but um, that's that's pretty much all I said. Just don't do professor interviews. <laughs> it's it's a good way of working. When you, in, in your one, just to touch on this then, I guess, with the Korea-Japan relations, um, the one that you did with the 1980s from Baden-Baden onwards and I, I sometimes get the feeling online in contemporary Korean society that some people might suggest that Korea-Japan relations, they're sort of being exacerbated today, but they were much better in the past. And I learned a lot looking <clears throat> at your documentary there because I could hear school kids and, and people on television in the 80s talking about what it meant to them to beat Japan. And, you know, some were doing it humorously, some were doing it very seriously. and but it gave me a great insight into that topic in the 1980s and how it was seen by real people at the time. What do you think we could learn from that, Taeyong? Or did you learn anything about people's views of Korea-Japan relations from the 80s when you were making that? When, when I was doing the research for that documentary, what? Um... Korea has always been uh, hostile, hostile to Japan. In in people's minds, we were always hostile. But the leaders of the country had to make a different decision, starting with Park Chung Yee in 1965 when uh, we uh, made the uh, relations back to normal again, uh -huh. because of the Cold War, uh, because. Uh, from a United States point of view, South Korea and Japan had to be hand in hand. They had to have a good relationship. And South Korea, you know, was in a position to 
have, having to listen to United States to what to do. So in the people's minds, we might not like it, but you know, we have to do it for a bigger good or to oppose the communists. So that has been restrained for a few decades, that, that kind of feeling. And back in the, and when the 90s come after the Olympics, you know, Korean people are feeling more, more confident. Hey, uh -huh. we don't have to listen to United States anymore. And with the Cold War ending also, you know, there's no need to be friendly with Japan anymore. You know, the, the communists are already gone. So, oh, that's... And when I was looking at the footage from the uh, mid-90s, you know, people were having rallies against Japan or people were saying some really harsh stuff about, uh, about Japan, which would would cause a problem if it was broadcasted today. Mm -hmm. um, it it felt like uh, we we were uh, it's like sort of like numureshite, uh, like mm -hmm. outbursts of emotion. It, it it was an outburst of emotion against Japan because it had been restricted for a few decades, but in the mid nineties that that restriction is starting to uh, disappear along with the Chongdokbu uh, building. Mm -hmm. So I, I always jokingly say that um, some kind of magic, magical uh, restriction has been removed since we removed that building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. The pure, pure emotions from the past comes back like that. That was amazing to see uh, when I was doing the research for the documentary. Mm. And yeah, I, I, I love looking at it because you give us those insights. When we're on Twitter, we're on social media, you get lost in in the maelstrom of modern life and emotions, but you can look back and see what it was like and get some perspective. And that's really, really helpful. The Modern Korea documentary has been invited back to the Rotterdam International Film Festival for the second consecutive year. And that's a fantastic achievement, right? And so it's also people outside of Korea are recognizing uh, this series for what it is. So a couple of questions here for you, Taeyong, on that. What do you think made the modern Korea series so successful? And is it possible that the success of Hallyu, like the dramas, the movies, the music, might have a knock-on effect and, and thus start looking more into your work, what your colleagues are doing, the documentaries? So what was it that made it successful? And is the, the second year at Rotterdam and outside interest, is that kind of tied into growing Hallyu or are they distinct, do you think? Um... Regarding the first question, I think it was successful because it was so, something fresh. It was something different from what people we were used to expecting from documentaries. Um, and I think that is probably is the biggest factor, how it is put together. Um, it is not conventional. Mm. People wanted to, to see something new. Um, I think that probably is the biggest reason why it was successful. Um, but I don't really feel any much connection to Hallyu. Uh, but 
as you mentioned, Rotterdam this year. It it is uh, going to Rotterdam with the older Korean television uh, drama uh, about about uh, you know Chansore Goyang. It's a it's like a what do you say? It's like a series of scary, scary or uh, creepy, like mm-hmm. like like something like Twilight Zone. Okay. Twilight Zone, and one of the episode was remade from a movie from uh, I think the seventies Korean movie, yeah. and one of the uh, uh, organizer organizers at the Rotterdam knew about that Korean movie. And when when she heard that this drama was remade from that movie, mm. she had an interest and oh why don't we have that drama which was used as a footage in modern Korea, mm. which is being showed in Rotterdam. And those those two, why don't we have those two uh, programs together in um, Rotterdam? So it must have had an um, influence because I was surprised that the programmer at the Rotterdam already knew about the, the movie that the Korean, old Korean movie. Mm-hmm. So that must have had a, some kind of influence, I think. Yes. Mm. I guess the, the modern career and and your work it's kind of like the antithesis of what comes out in Hallyu because that's all very bright and modern right. and right. aesthetically pleasing like this hyper real beautiful thing yeah. and and what that is the modern career in your work is it's kind of in that retro authentic grainy thing and if it works it works your your latest one uh, you recently Taeyong uploaded a YouTube teaser which looks like you're not your next project. I'm not sure how much you can talk about this, but I'll try to ask you the questions. This is uh, 1968's How Myonso Konsolhada, which is yeah. fighting while we construct or fighting while constructing. It looks unmistakably like your work, the images, the music, the mood. Like if I just saw it, I would know, ah, that's doing. So you have a style that's people work so hard to get a style like a signature i think so that's really cool what can we expect from this i guess there's been like five minutes i think the teaser was there the soundtrack's amazing looks great what is it yeah i'm just starting to i didn't even start my research on it because um i think i can start on it after the winter olympics mm-hmm. but i would I think this will be focused on 1968 of Korea because 1968 of South Korea is very different from 1968 of uh, other Western countries. Mm. Um, it was the year probably you could say that um, modernization of Korea really began or industrialization of Korea really began. And Saumyeonsegonsoranda is the motto of that year of Seoul city it's like okay we're we are fighting against communists but as at the same time we were constructing our city uh, korea so that um in 1968 with all the protests in the uh, 
Western world. What I found most interesting was Lyndon Johnson was was in South Korea in 1966. And he was doing a like a tour of the world back at back at the time, trying to rally uh, support for Vietnam War. He was booed everywhere um, because the Vietnam War War was just not popular at all. People, all the people were against it, but he was treated like a king in South Korea because. We, we were isolated from the world. Nobody really knew about uh, what was going on on our side. Maybe it's because we had North Korea right up uh, right up there. So when everybody else was trying, maybe um, protesting and uh, being disorderly, South Korea was starting to get orderly. Mm-hmm. not protesting uh, and so I think that contrast w- would be really interesting um, and uh, for instance like personal identification started in 1968 um, wow Jumin, Jumin yeah and, yeah you know many many things that we considered now uh, to be the basis of this country started in, in 1968 which led to being a more aggressive dictatorship in the early 70s. Uh, and what's also interesting is that around that time, North Korea started changing too, because mm-hmm. uh, North Korea was more like a traditional communist country back then, but it was becoming a more uh, dynasty of Kim's around the time. So I think it's an, I have much more research to do, but um, I recently found recently found uh, a lot of film footage from that period. And right now I'm working on digitizing them, digitizing them. What, what I put on the YouTube is a little bit of what's completed of the digitization of mm. that film. So it is a big challenge. Um, there, there is, the older programs have no audio. It, mm-hmm. only, it only has uh, pictures. So I'm, it's a big challenge for me to how to how to put together a story without audio. So I is don't it, know, well, I'll have to see. Is it also all black and white? And again, forgive my ignorance, but in like 88, there there is color te- television. Right, and you... it's, all, it's all black and white, yes. Is there any thought in your mind to colorize any of it or is it just gonna be a black and white out? How I was thinking about something? colorizing it, but um, there are two types of colorizing using the artificial intelligence and traditional colorizing, but artificial intelligence, using using AI is much cheaper, but it's not as good. Mm. It it just colors like run run off everywhere. If you do it traditionally, it's much better, but it's too expensive. So, I think I'm going to just stick with black and white for, for now. It might be interesting if like half of the screen was AI colored and the other half was still the black and white. So you could, you weren't trying to hide the technique. You know, you could say, well, look, this is what it really looks like. But if you need some color people, here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just mentioned the introduction of the identity cards. North Korea's changed to a more sort of uh, cold of personality, the motto of Seoul City. Sometimes we hear about historical controversies in things like Sologanghua, these kind of like high teen romance fantasies mm. with K-pop stars. 
but you feel like a historian do you feel you know history in as it's represented in dramas whether it's saguks or it's a huge issue but you seem to be approaching actual history is there part of you that's a historian Taeyong? um sometimes i feel like an archaeologist putting back all the pieces to a to make a vase which might not be the original vase honestly, because we have a lot of fragments from everywhere but mm. some kind of vase that uh, is plausible to have existed back then and sometimes i feel like i i am making a textbook on, on korean history because um uh first i said about the role of kbs we're creating a something we can share you know we we have different opinions about everybody has different opinions about uh, everything but i think what kbs can should do and can do is creating a least common denominator of what we have been going through mm. and share uh, have get a story that we can share you know you might uh, disagree on what effects that that story might have had but we can at least disagree we can at least agree on what happened mm. and how it how it happened so I, I would be happy if I can achieve that kind of role uh, through my programs that, uh, you know, we might have different opinions that how that affected Korean society after right. that happened. But, you know, I, through my program, I can uh, show the viewers the atmosphere uh, and what it was really like back then mm. and have a have a uh, base, a uh, common base uh, uh, of what happened. Uh, something we can share. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I say this honestly, like your work is a textbook in my Korean studies courses. Oh, I, I'm glad to hear that. Because it works for international students and, and domestic students alike, because there's not a huge narrative either left-wing or right-wing um, because the young students they want to watch stuff they want to be on youtube and, and so it fits that medium as well so it is an archaeologist's textbook so it, it really does work so please don't stop keep going you have a whole syllabus and uh, I, I thank you for it um <clears throat> you've spent a lot of time looking from modern korea into the past Taeyang. What have you learned during all of this? Have you gained any particular perspectives or understood any lessons from your time bringing Korea's past to the modern world? Can you tell us anything about Korea in light of where it has come from? Hmm. What, I, uh, what I came out with is that Korea is a really interesting country. I have been living here almost all my life, but it's really dynamic. It's really uh, volatile. And as long as we admit what happened as what happened, like for instance, um, I want to talk about 
the documentary that I made on student protests, protests of the 80s. Mm. Okay. It was clearly, clearly influenced by communism. The students were clearly influenced by communism. And some students were even influenced by North Korean Chucha ideology. Uh-huh. And in it, that itself is neither good or bad. You know, it, it was just like that. But many people don't want to admit that happened at all. Many people want to say, that, no, we just wanted democracy. We just wanted dictatorship thrown out. We, we, we never wanted to mess with that stuff. But what's ironic is they wanted to throw, throw out the current uh, system, South Korean system back then and achieve a more, achieve a more socialist, uh, socialistic system, mm-hmm. which acted as a big uh, energy to uh, drive out the dictatorship and make South Korea what it is right now. So, those students back then didn't exactly intend to just drive out dictatorship and have a have a, a capitalistic li- uh, liberal uh, country. But no matter what their intent was, you know, they did make a capitalistic liberal country, and I think that is very interesting. Uh, history doesn't turn out as what you intend. It it always has its twists and turns and it will be much more helpful for uh, uh, curing the bipolar uh, polarity of uh, South Korea right now if we could just be honest and admit what happened as it happened you know not being afraid of being accused of a communist or or red or Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, you know. I think that's what—that's exactly what happened in Seoul, Gwanghwa. You know, that—that mm. that might prob- that probably is not not one hundred percent true, but the the uh, setting or the uh, the uh, North Korean spy uh, acted as as a student activist. Uh, it's just it's just for fiction, but if you're not, mm. if fiction is not allowed, I, I'm, I'm, I get worried about yeah. uh, freedom of expression too. So that I mean that I think that's not a big deal. You know, it's just a fiction. It can happen, but mm-hmm. people are still still sensitive about that. And I understand there also because many people were. Mm, taken to prison mm-hmm. for that, even even if you're not really a communist or if you're not really sympathizing with North Korea. And in the first place, should you go to prison for being sympathizing with North Korea? I don't, I don't think so. So mm-hmm. I understand why people are being very sensitive, but it's all action and reaction. Mm-hmm. The, the dictatorship was focusing so much on killing the commies, you know. Right now, we've come to a point on the reaction that there were some communists. When you say there were some communists, it is a, that becomes a controversy. So, mm-hmm. you know, the extremes move. Um, 
always one way or the other. I think it's like a rubber band. If you pull it too too long, it comes back that the other way. Mm-hmm. Also, like like K, what's happening in KBS also. <laughs> um, so I think it's important not to pull it too long either way. Or I get I agree with you, Tang, and or I guess as well not to pull it too much about. What is essentially a drama like Sol Gang Hua, right. which is you know it's a fan, it's a Cinderella story. I, I I understand the setting, and some people might have genuine memories, but it would be more interesting to talk about your work and the archival footage and what is actually there, rather than fictional representations in, in dramas. Let the dramas be dramas, and let's talk right. about the history because. This stuff is not an actor. There's not a member of Blackpink in this. This is what happened. They're Korean people. Let's talk about this one. That would be a good thing to do. Yeah. I have faith. I think it will get there. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, I have to be cynical sometimes. It's my job as a in academia, but I, I'm pretty uh, optimistic. Uh,